Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Estonia and the UK have one of NATO's tightest defence relationships, but it's being tested by Britain's decision to bring home the extra troops it sent earlier this year. The second battle group currently deployed was always designed to be temporary. It definitely was our hope that uh, the second battle group will stay longer. We'll hear from Estonia what British troops have been doing there and what difference it's made. It was the end of last winter when Ukraine was invaded. Now winter approaches again. How will it affect this war? Troops will be struggling more with that cold weather. You need more equipment, you need better clothing, you need more fuel, food. Any military commander will tell you that to win the war, you need to win the weather, really. And we get an insider's take on the TV drama about the soldiers who went rogue to create the SAS. My wife was... um watching it with me and when they had the scene with the Australian soldiers winding up uh, Sterling in the bar she said that's what you were like. (laughs) At every moment for the last five and a half years hundreds of British troops have been in Estonia. Their time is spent training alongside their Estonian counterparts and on big exercises with forces from many other NATO countries. The reason for all this is deterrence, making Russia think twice about invading this small Baltic state. When Ukraine was invaded eight months ago, that UK presence in Estonia was almost instantly doubled to reinforce that deterrence. But this surge is now being wound down. While enhanced forward presence will continue with around 1,000 British soldiers, the extra agile task force is coming home. And it seems to have at least slightly shaken the tight defence relationship between the UK and Estonia. So much so that Estonia's foreign minister has publicly urged the new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, to increase defence spending, a diplomatically surprising step among close allies. Before we get a British perspective, let's hear from Estonia about what British troops are doing there and what it means to the country. Madis Roll is head of the NATO and EU department at Estonia's Ministry of Defence. For us, from a strategic point of view, it is important that the, the British forces get acquainted with uh, our troops, our philosophy of national defence, our defence plans and our terrain and our geographic peculiarities. So when a crisis may come up, uh, they are well prepared and well trained. That's really interesting. What, what do British troops need to learn about Estonian forces then? Can you give us any examples? First of all, our defence forces are not expeditionary forces. So we are a territorial defence. The mindset's a bit different. Our Geography, of course, is uh, different. We have uh, cold winters, we have swamps, we have dense forests, and the war fighting in that uh, kind of environment uh, needs getting used to and uh, needs practice. In addition to that NATO battle group, for much of this year, a second battle group has also been there on a bilateral basis. What have they been doing? The second uh, battle group uh, was a clear result of the Russian attack uh, on Ukraine. And this is a enforcement, so to say, of the UK commitment to Estonia just to be prepared for any, any escalation in our region as well. 
So in that sense, uh, we think that was uh, highly timely and it was really needed in that time. They aren't a part of uh, our brigade uh, as, as opposed to the uh, EFP battle group, which is integral part of the brigade. But nevertheless, it showed for us an increased readiness uh, to defend uh, Estonia. And how much of a difference does it make to Estonia's defence having British troops there? Of course, the, the biggest difference, again, from a strategic point of view, is uh, to have the uh, UK flag in Estonia. It's, a, it's a Terence messaging, the so-called tripwire concept. So if Russia would attack Estonia, Russia has to take into account that it attacks also NATO and the UK. But if you go back, go more into the operational and tactical level, uh, I think it's very important that the British EFP has uh, capabilities and equipment that our defense forces currently lack. For example, multiple rocket launcher systems and uh, air defense systems, of course, tanks. Uh, so uh, it is an invaluable addition in terms of capability. And when you talk about uh, providing a deterrence to Russia, can you give us a sense of why Estonia feels it really needs that deterrence? How under threat does Estonia feel? For us, uh, a Russian military threat is an existential threat. It's not an exotic threat, as it may be to some other countries. It uh, was a threat to us before uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine. We took it seriously back then as well, but now even more so. We are increasing our defence budget to 3% for the next couple of years. Uh, the government has made additional uh, one-time shot of money available uh, to defence forces uh, this year as well. We are also buying uh, in the near future MLRS systems and uh, artillery. And we, of course, try to take into account all the lessons learned from the Ukraine war. For example, we're also buying the loitering munition, which seems to be quite effective in Ukraine. So we are taking it really seriously. And you've talked about the importance of British troops in Estonia. How does Estonia feel about the ending of the UK's second battle group deployment? Does that, is there a sense that that might affect the deterrence? It definitely was our hope that uh, the second battle group will stay longer because the situation has not gotten better. We should signal increased commitment. However, we continue our discussions with the, our UK colleagues. Uh, in uh, the NATO Madrid summit, uh, we've agreed uh, that there will be a increased forward presence, a increased forward defence attitude. And the UK Minister of Defence has committed or made promises that uh, there will be increased presence of UK in Estonia in the near future. So. We are optimistic and it's not just only presence, it's also about rotations and exercises and ex exactly the types of weapon systems that we might need to fill our gaps that we'll continue uh, discussing. Madis Roll from Estonia's Ministry of Defence. Well, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark is with me. And Mike, the UK's Ministry of Defence points out the uplift of troops based in Estonia was always temporary. It says it's increased capabilities in other ways. And Madis Roll there also highlighted the importance of weapons, for example. I guess the question in making a decision like this is, is the perceived threat to Estonia now lower than it was immediately after Russia's tanks rolled into Ukraine? Yes, and I think the answer is that the threat is in military capability terms lower, 
but in political terms, a good deal higher. And what we mean by that is that politically, the Russians are now on a different tack. They are a clear and manifest threat to European security. And this war will go on and will get more serious. And that, in that respect, everything is getting more dangerous. But the military capability threat on the border with Estonia is less because the Russians have taken everybody away. They've sent everybody they can to Ukraine where things are not going very well and they've, they've used up uh, what equipment that they've got for the conventional forces. So in one sense, the Russians are less capable everywhere else than Ukraine than they were before the war started. And in that respect, there's a bit of military breathing space. But the issue is still one of of perception. You can say what you like about troops being available in the United Kingdom. The Russians think of security in terms of who is there on the ground. Well, let's get the thoughts now of General Sir Richard Shiref, former NATO Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe, who says removing the UK's second battle group from Estonia is a flawed decision. We're in a very dangerous situation. Russia may not be able to attack the Baltic states at the moment directly by land, but nevertheless, the risk of escalation remains very, very high. And the only way to manage that risk by NATO is effective deterrence. And that means significant troop levels on the in Eastern Europe and on the borders of Ukraine. So reducing NATO uh, British troops in Estonia at a time like this, Estonia is a frontline state, sends a very, very poor message, I think, and a dangerous message of weakness. And the one thing the NATO, the Russians always respect is strength. Removing a battle group is not showing strength. The government's argument is that it's capabilities rather than troop numbers that matter and that it's actually increasing those capabilities. Let's just listen to what the Defence Minister, Baroness Goldie, told the Lords when asked to rethink. The second battle group um, currently deployed was always designed to be temporary. It was placed in there at the start of the illegal invasion of Ukraine um, by Russia. And the noble lord will also be aware that we are enhancing the lethality of the permanent EFP battle group. So we'll maintain divisional level assets in country. We'll augment these with episodic deployments of battle winning capabilities. We're enhancing our EFP HQ, which will be led by a brigadier. And we're committed to the development of Estonian National Divisional C2. So the overall commitment by the UK is actually being enhanced and strengthened. So what do you make of that? Well, you know, it's uh, it's classic sort of MOD smoke and mirrors talk, I'm afraid. That is not how it will be perceived, be perceived by Putin. And we have to think enemy here. It's great that the capabilities are being enhanced. But the fact is that Russians understand the language of currency of divisions and brigades. And if you drop below that, you're demonstrating weakness. And that is how it will be perceived. Britain is, though, keeping a battle group in Estonia and enough UK-based troops at high readiness to make that into a brigade at short notice if needed. Do you really think that does look like weakness rather than deterrence to Russia? Well, I would dig into the detail here. At very high readiness, what does that actually mean? Do we really think we've got the capability, the forces, the troops, the vehicles, the sustainability, the shipping to move, to reinforce Estonia at very high readiness. I somehow doubt it. I think the reality is that this is a decision that has been made uh, because our troop numbers are so, so small, are so tiny. Of course, the, the soldiers in those battle groups need to be relieved, but this is about the fact that the cupboard is, is bare, and that comes down to defence cuts. 
Retired General Sir Richard Shiraf there. Mike, I want to pick up on that defence spending point in a moment, but let's just take a step back. We still have a 1,000 British troops plus hardware in Estonia, hundreds more from France and Denmark. That adds a lot to a country whose defence forces are 4,000 people at permanent readiness and the rest reservists. Does that add up to credible forces to defend Estonia against invasion? Uh, No, it doesn't. It adds up to a force that can be a deterrent, which is to say it's a tripwire. And if those forces were attacked or if Russian troops at some point came across the border or created an internal problem of little green men, then these forces might be credible to deal with that. But if that turned into a Russian attempt to grab Estonia, then these forces are not capable of defending it. The point is that at the Madrid-NATO summit, not very long ago, the alliance switched from a policy of deterring to defending the Baltics, because the, the Baltic states are quite hard to defend. They've got, they've got to be defended forward. It's no good saying, well, we'll liberate them, because it's very hard, once another force controls the Baltic states, to get there. We've moved from deterring to defence. But if we are going to defend the Baltics, then the only way you can defend, as Sir Richard Sheriff says, is to have troops there. Having them on very high readiness doesn't mean very much, because the issue, the, the question is, well, if they're at very high readiness, could the whole force, the whole force, everything that you need, could it be there in 48 or 72 hours? And I think the answer is no, it couldn't. And so therefore, mm. we're back to deterrence rather than defence, which is not what we said we were going to do at the Madrid summit. Um, Mike, on that question of defence spending, we get answers in the budget two weeks from now. More money at this point looks to be pretty much off the table. So the question is, will defence have to cut its budget or stand still? How much is at stake here for the UK's armed forces? Uh, Well, a great deal. I was talking in the last uh, couple of days to a number of ministers and ex-ministers and the general belief, nobody quite knows what will be in the budget as far as defence is concerned, but I think you're right that that there won't be an immediate increase in defence spending. The question is that the the commitment to spend 3% by 2030 will probably remain, but it it won't mean anything because to realistically spend 3% by 2030, you've got to start to prepare that now. Throwing, you know, a bung of money at defence in 2029 will not do the job. More realistically, what we're concerned with is do we stick to 2.5% of GDP on defence by 2026? And that that's critical. If that appears in the budget, I think defence specialists will be quite relieved. But we don't really expect to see it. Um, I think that will become an aspiration rather than a commitment. But we'll find out in two weeks' time. Mike, stay with us. Winter is coming. It's not just Game of Thrones that has given that phrase its power to instill dread. For as long as there have been soldiers, they have known that weather can potentially decide the result of a war and be the difference between life or death. Russia's invasion of Ukraine eight months ago was on a deadline before frozen ground turned to mud. Now, as conditions turn again, the UK is sending not just weapons, but £10 million worth of winter clothes, shelters, generators, fuel trucks and ambulances. We'll assess the likely impact of the winter weather on the war in a moment. But first, what conditions can Ukraine expect in the coming weeks and months? Simon King is a meteorologist and BBC weather presenter. He's also served as an RAF reservist, delivering forecasts on British military operations overseas. 
So Ukraine has quite a, a varied climate, really, because uh, throughout the summer, it can get really quite hot and dry. But into the winter, you have those big swings in temperature. It's continental climate, basically. So we're now in that kind of transition period uh, in Ukraine where... Uh, now the temperatures are around about 10 to 15 degrees Celsius, but into November, we start to see those temperatures really drop down. So kind of the average temperatures in November are around about five or six degrees Celsius by day. But at night, they will start to now get down close to freezing. And then as we go further into the winter, that's when you can get those really extreme temperature contrasts. So the daytime temperatures may be about freezing or one or two Celsius overnight they'll be down to well below minus five minus six minus seven degrees celsius but in some situations when you can get a big siberian anticyclone developed across ukraine you can actually get temperatures down as low as minus 20 celsius so the weather can really get quite extreme now we're going into winter and before the big freeze sets in how wet is it going to be well, it has been quite wet recently, and we're now again in that stage of autumn where the rainfall does increase slightly, uh, not too dramatically. They get around about the same sort of rainfall in December, say, than uh, London would get. But certainly now the ground is starting to get soggier, uh, and that's when you start to see, obviously, the more mud developing. Now, also, there will be a point uh, as we get closer to kind of January, February sort of time when those temperatures get even lower, that the mud will, will start to freeze and uh, you get that you know, difference in terrain. So while during the autumn, it gets really quite muddy, you've got the, the problems, the issues with um, ground movement with, with vehicles getting stuck in the mud, there will be a point where it turns again uh, when it might become a bit easier. And how long will the ground remain frozen? It's probably more likely to be in January, February, March, where you'll start to see that, that ground really freezing, especially in the northeast. Uh, and that will probably last right through till March, April sort of time. Mm. Ukraine, of course, is a big country. It's particularly in the east and the south where the fighting is happening right now. Do conditions vary much across the country? Not dramatically. If anything, you do get it a little bit milder down to the southeast of Ukraine, just because obviously you're, you're more towards the Mediterranean there. So uh, temperatures are a little bit higher than they say will be towards the northeast of Ukraine. That's when you get those those really uh, cold blasts from Siberia. Uh, although there's not a huge amount of difference between the northeast to the southeast. It can be a little bit uh, less cold, uh, especially around uh, um, the Odessa Bay, for example, because you've just got that the sea surface temperature keep things a little bit less cold. And Simon, you've delivered weather forecasts for the UK's armed forces on operations in Iraq and Afghanistan as an RAF reservist. In your experience, how much of a difference does weather make to commanders and the troops they're leading? Oh, it makes a huge difference. Any, any military commander will tell you that to win the war, you need to win the weather, really. You need to know uh, exactly what's going on. And as you said, I've experienced that firsthand with briefing commanders on, on certain conditions and certain operations. Um, and it, it's very, very important. They take a, a lot of note of what you say in the weather forecast, which can be quite a stressful job sometimes. But of course, the weather conditions will affect all sorts of troop movements from tanks to vehicles to aircraft, you know, you can get aircraft icing in the wintertime. So operations may be restricted because of the weather, whether that be the cold, the wind, the rain, the visibility, etc. But then also troop morale, because if you think that, you know, while it starts to get a bit wetter, a bit muddier now, as you get into wintertime, you know, both in Russia and Ukraine, 
troops will be struggling more with uh, that cold weather. You need more equipment, you need better clothing, you need more fuel, food, and that sort of thing. So it can make a big difference on the overall uh, aspects of the conflict. BBC weather forecaster Simon King. Uh, Mike, Simon outlined the issues there, mud, morale, machinery. It's clear winter will slow the military campaigns, but could it tip the balance a bit? I guess that depends if it impacts Russia and Ukraine evenly, or is it likely to be harder on one than the other? Well, generally speaking, I mean, winter is better for the defenders than the attackers. I mean, winter is miserable for everybody in these sort of situations, but it's generally speaking easier to hold a position in the bad weather than to attack a position where you've got to keep your vehicles moving and keep everything on the go and so on. But Simon King said some very interesting things there. For instance, the effect on morale. And I think it's very clear that although the Ukrainians, I'm sure, will want to keep up this offensive and they may find that a bit more difficult, but probably the most important thing is that they're getting a lot of good winter equipment from NATO, unglamorous things like better clothing, better ways of cooking, And I think that may be a very critical difference because we know that the Russians are not well equipped and the increased morale of the uh, Ukrainians, which is is pretty high anyway, I think will get in relative terms even higher. And so the the misery of the winter, although it favours the defenders, might actually be a real Achilles heel for Russian forces. And so I think the, the winter may turn out to be on balance much better for the Ukrainians than we might have expected a couple of months ago. Now, pop the kettle on or maybe grab a beer. It's time for some telly. The BBC's new Sunday night blockbuster drama, SAS Rogue Heroes. It tells the story of how the legendary Special Forces unit was formed during World War II in Egypt with the help of some slick graphics, 21st century rock music and quite a few swear words. Its producers describe the drama as being based on a true story but claim they've had to tone down some elements to make it more believable. So we thought we'd get an assessment of the show from an SAS insider, but first, a quick flavour of the programme and the rogue behaviour that created the SAS. No one has ever parachuted in the desert before. Not ever. When a vulture spreads its wings out there, it goes up, not down. Mm. So someone would need to try it. Yes. Just us. We prove it can be done. And we prove to each other that we are committed. No one to stand us down. I want to stand us down. You stole the parachutes. I was still an aeroplane. Well, let's talk to Robin Horsfall, who served in the SAS in the late 1970s and the 80s. Robin, good to speak to you. Have you watched it? I watched the opening uh, episode, yes. And um, I really enjoyed it, which is unusual for me because I'm not a great fan of SAS television programmes, but this was... uh, This was quite good fun. Okay, so you say you don't usually like this kind of stuff. What was it about it that attracted you? Um, I like the characterisation. I like the fact that the characters in the drama are believable. Um, They are not supermen. They are not walking around glaring at each other and being tough and hard all the time. And they've got brains, um, which is not the common portrayal um, in television programmes of an SAS soldier. So I enjoyed it. You know, there was a, there was an awful lot of good stuff in there. Mm, the makers described the drama as mostly true. The producer has said they toned down some elements so as not to stretch viewers' belief. Any idea what sort of things they might have left out or does that feel like an attempt at creating some kind of buzz around the show? 
Well, you've got to, you, they don't know the people concerned. The people that are concerned have passed on um, and they weren't there. So they've got to invent some kind of personal drama to make the programme enjoyable. They're not selling history, they're selling drama. But they're, they, they've stuck to a narrative that's close to the true story in the sense of what actually happened, where they were and so on. The business about um, nobody knows if you can jump, jump with a parachute in the desert is absolute nonsense. A parachute will work, you know, a parachute will work anywhere. And they knew that then and there. What they, uh, what they didn't know was um, how to um, set up static line parachutes in aeroplanes. And uh, there were several deaths because they, they didn't know what they were doing at the beginning. But uh, if it follows, it follows the same kind of historical accuracy, great. My wife was um, watching it with me because um, we met when I was on SAS selection in 1978. And when they had the scene with the Australian soldiers winding up uh, Sterling in the bar, and he reflects on um, the type of men that he's used to serving with, she said, that's what you were like. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I might have been seeing it a bit through rose-tinted spectacles. She said, no, he's describing you. So, yeah, I really, really liked it. And there is action in this, but it's not your average World War II drama. It focuses very much on the people, as you said earlier. Let's just play yeah. another clip from the show. We are L Detachment, 1st Special Air Service What's left of us? Maybe it's your attitude. Maybe it's the way you walk, but you are walking on a tightrope. This is a big desert, but there is no room in it for realists or pragmatists or believers in common sense. Robin, does that ring true to you as the sort of ethos that would have created the SAS? Maybe that lasts to this day? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I do know I met Sterling several times and had an evening with him in, in uh, Muscat. He was still then a very humorous and commanding chap and held a lot of respect and reverence from us as the young men in the room. I did have officers in charge of me who, were, who fit that mould, who uh, were prepared to take us into Argentina uh, on a one-way mission to destroy the jets in the Falklands War and put a positive tone on it. Paddy Main, um, I, I knew guys that served with him, but I didn't myself, it was a generation later. He was very much a wild man. They're real believable characters and, um, you know, they did like the drink. And Paddy Main, who you mentioned there, he's also a bit of a poet. You've also taken to writing poetry. Is that an SAS thing we don't know much about? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think where uh, Paddy's concerned, I think it was a natural Irishman in him. I think with me, it was uh, it was a result of my late education at university when I was 56. <laughs> and Robin, can I can I safely say you're going to binge watch the rest with your wife? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to drag it out over a few weeks rather than try to watch the whole thing in one shot um, mm. and savour it. And um, I, I really, really hope it carries on in the trend that it's opened with. I shy away from the the, the swearing. I think there's a little bit too much of that in the, in the programme, but. That's what soldiers do, I suppose. 
Robin Horswell, thank you. Uh, and SAS Rogue Heroes is on Sunday nights on BBC One. If you're serving overseas, you can watch, catch up on the BFBS TV player. Uh, Michael Clark, it's fascinating watch. And for those who don't know the history of the SAS, it's really interesting to see that one of the world's most respected military units was born out of soldiers literally going rogue, frustrated with their commanders, defiant of d- discipline. Yes, and uh, I think that's the way the, the way of it. I mean, Max Hastings has written about heroes in a book about about military heroes, and of course, it's very clear that a lot of people who become heroes, who win VCs and so on, are very much on the edge. And these are people who you know don't fit in very well in Civvy Street, and the, the forces and forces at war provide them with an outlet for that almost near madness. But I have to say, since the, since the SAS was formed, remember, Britain's special forces have become very different. <clears throat> They're very, very professional. They do what they do, and they are admired the world over. And the point about them is that, you know, everyone thinks they're all about violence because they can visit paralyzing violence on, on anybody, and, and indeed they can and they're trained to do it. But that's not their job. Their job is to be reconnaissance. They are special because they can exist in any environment in either very small units or on their own. And so, for instance, you take the Special Reconnaissance Regiment, which is part of the SAS, they did a lot of counter-terrorism work and existing in any environment, for some of them, and it's been written about, meant being out on the streets, sleeping on the streets, in doorways in central London, while they did reconnaissance. And they would put on filthy clothes, and they would douse themselves in drink, and they would live on the street for a few days, or a week, or even two weeks, in shop doorways, as down and outs, being kicked at and urinated on by passers-by in order to report what they saw. Just as they did in the desert, looking for the Scuds, the Iraqi missiles during the Iraq War of 1991, just as they do in, did in Afghanistan. It's their ability to be a recce force, to exist quietly and observe what's going on. That's what makes them special. And full respect to Robin Horsfall, he speaks very, very well about all of this and he's a very good man. But anybody who tells you in the pub that they were with the SAS or the SBS almost certainly <laughs> never were. Absolutely. Professor Michael Clark, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time and thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye bye. (laughs) 